This is episode number 235 of the Rising Man podcast with Alicia Halpin. Longevity and legacy cannot come from survival. Welcome back, Rising Man family. Thank you for joining me here today. My name is Jetty Azuma, and I am here to host another episode of the Rising Man podcast. Honored to bring in our guest of honor today. Before I introduce our guest, though, I want to make sure you guys know that an amazing opportunity is coming up May 4th through 7th here in Austin, Texas. We're having our second Austin Dojo that is coming up. Spaces are limited, and this is the most powerful opportunity you're going to get this year to sharpen your embodiment, to prepare yourself for the unknown, to literally put yourself through challenging sequences and circumstances that will simulate the obstacles and the overwhelm that you experience in life. And there's no better container to do that in than the one we provide in Dojo. Again, it's May 4th through 7th here in Austin. Spaces are limited, so go to risingman.org slash dojo and claim your spot today. Okay, our guest for today is Alicia Halpin. Alicia is a sacred life mentor and embodiment coach for visionaries, creatives, healers, and coaches. She creates space for sacred leaders to trust their power, create their sacred service to have a greater impact in their communities, and authentically express their truth. Her mission is to help create a new cosmology for humanity by reclaiming our sacred nature and knowing ourselves as the holy ground. Through Sacred Soul Somatics, Alicia weaves her 20-plus year career as a tenured professor of somatics and dance with breathwork, neurosculpting, energy work, intuitive channeling, and transpersonal psychology for a whole system approach to healing and transformation. In this episode, Alicia described the importance of following the impulses that bring us alive, specifically purpose and legacy, why that's important for all people, not just men. We also discussed the implicit drive to be of service and how following legacy before I've anchored purpose can be detrimental to one's growth. Alicia then dropped a bomb on the belief so many of us have in the silence of our own minds. What if I'm wrong and late? She talked about what stress is, how does it drive us, and how do we leverage stress to perform, the hidden ways that we create a false personality out of our stress responses, and last but not least, why longevity and legacy cannot come from survival. Without further ado, Alicia Halpin. Rising Man family, I have a, a really special guest here today, a woman that I have so much respect for, both who you are and the work, the body of work that you're bringing into the world. I can't wait to spotlight it here. So everybody, Miss <laughs> Alicia Halpin coming in live from outside of Panama City, Florida. How are you doing today? Yeah. I'm doing really well. Excited to be here. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. Likewise. I, I've lost count at this point because for the first couple of years on the podcast, we didn't have any women. It was a lot of uh, mm. female guests and people who identify as men. Sure. Um, yeah. So you're probably, but we've we've opened up that a lot. So you're probably maybe 15th woman, maybe less. I'm not sure. But yeah. you have such a great way of, um, and for anybody who doesn't know, I, I've been working with you as my coach now for the past, I think like four or five months now. Yeah. And you have such a great way of bridging the gap between masculine and feminine that I really appreciate. And so, mm. um, yeah, so I'm so excited to have you on here today. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to hit you with the question I ask everybody right off the bat. I don't know if you're ready for All it, right. but here it comes. Um, <laughs> what does it mean to be a man? Oh, okay. Yes. Um, mm. What a juicy question to get to dig into right nope, No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Um, 
You know, I, I am not even sure what it is to be a woman. So I'm not sure how I could possibly answer what it is to be a man. Um, my interest, my curiosity around our lived experience as humans is, you know, how do we, how do we get in touch with following the impulses that bring us alive? Um, and I think that's, you know, for whether, whatever genders we are ascribe or are following for me, what's, what I think makes a man, a woman, a person, um, is really, are they interested in coming alive through their own body? Are they really here for an experience that is enlivening? And, and are they conscious and curious about the imprint they're leaving upon the world, their community, their family, um, you know, the land and, and, and what lights them up and why, and how are they working with that Mm. in their life? Uh, I love that. In what you're saying, I hear purpose and legacy. Those are the two things that jump mm, out for me. Absolutely, yes. But I'd love for you to say, say more about what coming alive means to you, because yeah, I just want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, totally. You know, I think I think one of the questions that we, and maybe not everyone, but the people in my world, in my sphere, the people that I work with, um, have wrestled with since they were little is like, why am I here? What's my purpose? And even if we don't articulate it that way when we're younger there's this drive and this need to, to serve, to impact, to help, to make things better. And so I think that interplay between legacy and purpose is really important because I think that we often can fall towards following legacy before we've anchored purpose. Ooh, yeah, keep going. (laughs) Well, so there's this way that it's easier for me to think about my impact of others rather than the embodiment of myself or how I'm inhabiting myself. And I think one of the places where I really worked with people or that I love to dig into is this place where our gifts get identified or kind of earmarked when we are young and we then begin to ascribe our own value, worth, identity towards the expression of our gifts. Mm. And that we've forgotten that piece of inhabiting ourself is the first thing that's needed, not to burn out, not to be giving ourselves away, not to be selling ourselves short, to be able to follow. I mean, you and I just had a conversation recently that was like, oh, wait, if I anchor deeper into my purpose, I have to question whether I'm doing this because I really want to you know, or because this was what was expected of me or just seemed normal. So I think that in many ways, the people that I work with, the high capacity leaders that I work with, uh, legacy is natural. And inhabiting their purpose for themselves is not. And so for me, where the interplay of legacy and purpose come in is like my purpose is to become the most dynamic, embodied, enlivened version of me right, to really be the vessel of my soul, and then to let that express, and that expression is how it becomes my legacy. So when I leave the world is the, is the, is the, you know, the legacy of my expression, what gets created. What I become is what I take with me, though, right? The infinite part of me that goes on into this evolutionary journey is what I have become, what I've woven energetically and, you know, metaphysically as self into this body, is what goes on with me. And I think that we want to really have this beautiful interplay between both. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds to me that those of us who put legacy before purpose in the way that you outlined it for us, it's like the ultimate putting the cart before the horse. Uh, Absolutely. Getting to the doing before the being part, which and, for all yeah, different types. Yeah, I think we're going to do it. <laughs> Go I think we're going to do it. I think I think we're, that's how it goes. I think we do put the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. And and maybe there's a way, like those of those people who are raising children, like maybe there's a way to switch that. But for me, I haven't seen many people who've actually had a horse like they that they haven't done this backwards. I quote unquote backwards. So there's also then an aspect of me of like that journey of like maybe embodiment can't come first. Ooh, yeah, maybe there's a way to that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that there can be a way in this world of like healing embodiment whatever we're you know whatever particular lens we're working that there is an aspect of like i'm wrong and late (laughs) you know like i should have you know like i should have never fallen apart in my 20s over that breakup and i and 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 i just for me personally like i don't believe that and i think there's enough universality in the experiences that we're going through to recognize there's something about the archetypal journey here the mythopoetic aspect of coming into ourself and that possibly we have to have some experience underneath right and that i also have to have had enough experience of expression before i go i really am going to trust that this is who i am and now i've got the the gumption and the ability to set boundaries and all of these skill sets now to be like and now it's time to inhabit this fully yes right so i haven't started working with men quite in the same way like you're one of my first really high level vip men but with the women i've been working on the shift from the uh queen which is a very common archetype in the woman's especially in women's empowerment now women's spirituality like become the queen of your life so i'm actually interested in and and how we shift out of that queen kind of headspace and body space into the high priestess Mm. And so, so that, this can, way, can you just define those two as the way that you yeah, do that so, with women? Maybe we can see a parallel for the men too. I feel like the queen really comes into the place of like being confident in her expression of self mm-hmm. in a way that she's like, I can start this business. I can have this baby. I can do the thing. She builds a queendom, right? She begins to order her life more from an authentic place. Mm-hmm. She begins to allow her deeper self to be present in how she's operating but there's still a lot of survival and there's still a lot of conditioning in the queen Mm -hmm. so she still hasn't completely uh gone through decolonization she hasn't completely dealt with her inner patriarchy so there's this kind of both and aspect in the queen it's like there's a lot of authenticity and then there's also still patriarchy there's a lot of self-expression but then there's still some co-opted conditioned self. And so what I've seen is that if we don't evolve through this place to come to the next level that I'm calling the high priestess or the high priest, um, and we stay at this kind of king queen place, we just keep blowing up our queendom or kingdom and putting it back together. And so I see this in leaders where it's like, all of a sudden we're pivoting every year or, you know, the offers that we're doing so well stop doing and we just start throwing spaghetti everywhere and we're freaking out and our marriage is all bust up at all of these places. We're like, we're blowing up our life. And part of the message in that blow up is like, you can't keep doing things from survival. 
And I think what's really hard for high capacity leaders is to admit that they've been using their survival to create their impact, to create their legacy. And that if we wanted to have a longevity beyond our life, we need to deal with the survival aspects because survival energy is finite. So there's not really an aspect of this that I think is like the specifics of king or queen, but that I see in how the mythopoetic is landed in our current society, we have put the king and queen kind of at the top. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And from, and from- from the men's perspective, I, I think you, I think you're nailing it. That 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 what you said before about I'm wrong and late is, <laughs> I, I laughed because that's something I know I've definitely felt before, still do sometimes, yeah. and yeah. I've witnessed it in so many other men. And I think it's more a function of the expectation, the social narrative yeah. that's been created about what we should be doing and how we should arrive there and what it should look like. And mm. it's only been exacerbated by social media and the portrayal of what success looks like. You know, we, we can put these pieces mm. together. It's not a complex puzzle, but I see so many men who are feeling that urge or that impulse that you're talking about, that impulse of yeah. purpose and not giving themselves enough permission to swing the bat and miss, to, to, yes. to, to fire the arrow and miss the target enough times to get really good at hitting the target. And that that yeah. lack of, I think it's a it's a combination of stamina, endurance, tenacity to just find a way, whatever it takes to stay in it. But then this other yes. layer that you're bringing to it to actually heal while in it, not just hold my yes. breath and charge through that <laughs> a lot of people are getting stuck in. I think, I think that's specific to a lot of the men that I see. Again, I don't know what the experience yeah. is like for the women you work with. Yeah. Well, would you say that impulse is honored in like um, our society? Like, do you feel that impulse is honored? Not, not to the, not to the degree I think it needs to be. So I'll just say a no. I'll say broadly, no. There's certainly people who are, yeah. but broadly, no. Yeah, I agree. I don't think impulse is honored. And so I think that because impulse isn't honored, what happens is that when we start to go on this journey, of empowerment and we start to find the impulse the only way that we've seen it or that we get initiated into it in our society is that it then gets co-opted by urgency mm. right because how many times do we think we should know everything before we begin oh how many times do we have pressure on ourselves that we should be at the end of the journey we've never even taken a step we've never stumbled right but we watch babies every day and I've never seen a baby just get up and take off running. Right. So there's this way that like we forget that impulse has to have a messy experience, right? That like skinning our knees is really normal. Well, and I think that time function is a really difficult piece because I love that you brought babies into it because babies got all the time in the world to learn how to walk. Right. I think I saw a stat totally. statistic somewhere that children under the age of two, they fall and like land on their butts, something like several hundred thousands of times. <laughs> and and that's all they do. They get up, they fall down, they get up, they fall yeah. down and let's do it again. They get up and fall down. And they, they have the time to do that. I think some of mm. this, whether it's perception or reality, that we don't give ourselves the permission and the room and the conditions to be able to mm. fail. So I see so many people yeah. who are starting businesses or creating coaching practices or, or movements and organizations 
when they clearly don't have the experience or the embodiment yet to do it. And that it doesn't right. take away from the purpose or the heart of that, right? The, the, the heart, the, the right. genuine desire to make an impact on people is there, but there's an urgency between, well, I, I can't, yeah. I, I can't find another way to make this work. So I just got to push it out there and fake it till I totally. make it. And yeah. So yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Oh, so much comes up with that. And the first thing I would say is um, when I was a long time ago, I read The Artist's Way. <laughs> I was like, how old was I? I have no idea. Somewhere, somewhere in my 20s. Um, I believe somewhere between grad school and 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 having, um, you know, taking on a tenure track job, I, I started with The Artist's Way. And one of the biggest things that that book, like, zeroed me in was like, it was my job to define success. And it still took a while for me to go like, ding, ding, ding. If I'm defining success, I might want to define failure. Right. And so I think that we have to, like, it's our responsibility to define what is success and what is failure. And I think that without that, we live in the abstraction of the perfectionist. Right. And the perfectionist is like that pressure that it's never enough and it's never good enough. We're never enough. We don't know enough, you know, and it just creates this sort of, um, biofeedback loop of static of not enough. And for me, when living in that place, I called it ambition. <laughs> and I was really ambitious, but really I was a perfectionist with no landing place and no definition of what I was pursuing or why. And so I would just set these unrealistic goals. And I, and, and, but from that place, like, as you said, like, I didn't have any of the things I needed to achieve them. Right. So they were just constant overreaches that then would just prove that I wasn't enough. And then I would sort of lick my wounds around that. And then I would just set some other unrealistic thing. Usually things that like, there's no way I could achieve that because most of that's so far out of my controllable you know, itinerary for how I would even set it up. It just, it would, it's just crazy making. It's just ridiculous. So I no longer, so I don't even work with success and failure personally anymore. I look at capacity. I look at energy and I look at the season. So for me, I have to look at capacity in three ways. Like, do I have the capacity to begin? Like, do I actually have the energy in my life? Do I have the resourcing in my life? Do I have the time in my life? And if I don't, it doesn't matter what the great idea is. It doesn't matter what I want to be doing. I need to have a real just moment of a reality check that I do not have capacity for this goal. And it, so it doesn't matter how great it is. If I do have the capacity there, then the next place I have to look at capacity is like, do I have the capacity to be consistent? Do I have the capacity to hold my commitment? And that's where we start getting into more of the emotional places, the subconscious places, our habits, our patterns. And so for a lot of us, there's a, there's a lot of work that has to be done in this place of our capacity to stay consistent with our commitment, to show up every single day and not fall back into the set point of the habit itself, right? And so this is why we quit things. This is why everyone starts, you know, sets a goal and it never follows through all these places because we're not tending capacity to show up. We're not tending the subconscious place where all of my energy is held in my trauma and my stress and that story from my seventh grade teacher, like all of those places that my body's still holding as stuckness is going to prevent me from having the ability to show up fully. So once I deal with that capacity, 
<laughs> excuse me, then I have to deal with the capacity to change. Do I have the capacity to be successful? And this comes into our identity. Am I so entrenched in my identity from the past that the, I can't even see who I would be from this next level? Right? Because if we don't know where we're going, how could we go there? If there hasn't been some experience, so the body follows the energy it can know. If I've had no experience of something, there is no way I have a capacity to begin to shift the identity towards it. So it has to, so this is why I think community is so essential because sometimes how I get that experience is I listen to Sue or John or Mary share their growth or their thing that they did. And that gives me the experience of going, oh, that's what I can feel that through their body. I can feel that through their words. Oh, that's what it is when you believe in yourself. That's what it is when you go, you know, you go for that thing. Like, oh, now I've got an experience that begins to give me the capacity to change my identity and let go of the past identity. Right. And so for me, I don't worry about whether I'm succeeding or failing. I worry about like the capacity in those ways. I also worry about whether I'm following my own interest, which for a lot of us, maybe. So I'm a firstborn. Um, and I took on that kind of role of like, my job was to make sure my parents were really happy about what I was doing. I'm also a rebel. So that was, that has always created a little bit of conflict in my life where I both am like trying to follow authority and do what they want me to do. And then also needing to rebel against it. Um, and so that can create a lot of mess in my life. If I'm not paying attention to that place of like, am I actually interested in this? Am I doing this because I want to be doing it? Or am I doing it for that outside validation? Am I doing it because I think this is what everyone else wants from me or expects from me? I really have to tend that line because I can very easily kind of mask my own desires because it would better serve everybody else because it's going to make my, you know, I mean, I had a university job for years and, and one of the biggest reasons is because I knew it made my dad happy that I had health insurance, that he didn't, you know, like that he'd have to worry about me being a starving artist or a dancer living in New York, but that like I had taken a real job and they gave health insurance. <laughs> and I mean, I've loved part of my university job and it was a great growth experience, but at the same time, I wasn't completely following what I wanted to be doing or my interest. And I always was trying to co-opt what, you know, like add in my own self to my life. Yeah. Uh, man, there's so much in there to, to pick apart and dive into. I, I want to, I'm glad that you mentioned the communal piece because when you were starting to talk about capacity and taking what, what sounded to me like really slowing down and taking time to, mm. to take inventory, do I have the mm -hmm. capacity for this? Do I have the resources? Do I have the experience and the knowledge? And then taking it to the next level, do you know, am I resourced with the things that I require to actually move this forward? Yeah. I, in my mind, I imagined some of the listeners out there hitting that wall right right away and be like uh i don't know and and then going into what i think would be like a nervous system response where it's totally. i just i can't even do this i just got to go and take action that's that's what my nervous system has done in the past is Absolutely. i don't have time to sit down and contemplate this i don't even know where to begin to mm -hmm. contemplate this because i don't have that experience or wisdom so um i'm glad you brought in the community piece because that's for for me right where it comes into play is like yes and we're not supposed to have to go through these uh, sequences right. alone. And yeah. so um, whether it's the community piece you dive into first, I, I really would love to have you bring in 
the the nervous system perspective yeah. and bringing that layer into how we move through these sequences. Yeah. So let's just talk about, let's just do the nervous system first. So you absolutely are right that the stress response will take you into doing. Mm-hmm. So stress is a stimulus that requires movement or action. Mm-hmm. So our stress comes in, so we do something. Our addiction to living that way is how we get shit done. And most of us are not aware enough or in tune enough to, to paying attention to our stress response. And we call it our personality, but it's actually a stress response, Mm. right? And we become really uh, comfortable in the identification of our stress response. And it's how we know ourselves. It's how we locate ourselves. It's how we track ourselves. It's how we know if we're doing quote unquote good or bad, or if I'm feeling like myself or not. And so what's happening every time we're, we're using our stress response improperly, right? Our stress response is a beautiful, innate, wise part of our system that we as modern day people are screwing with and, and just, you know, making into all of these coping mechanisms that are creating these massive stress maps in our system that we then have really complicated personalities around um, rather than just accepting it's a stimulus. I don't feel safe to sit here slowly and feel and process because I've been taught that if I don't know, I am unsafe. So one of the biggest tigers that we have in modern day life is, I don't know, I'm so confused. This is really hard, right? Those are places where we have, we act like we're going to die because we don't know the answer. We haven't even formed a good question. We don't even ask wise questions. We just come from this place of, I don't know. I used to have a rule in my, in my studio class, right? Where the students would be like, I would do something and they'd be like, I'm so confused. And so like on my syllabus, it says, we may not say I'm so confused before we have tried, <laughs> before you have done it. Like, you don't know if you don't know, you've not, you've not done anything, right? You've not been there long enough. So I think that one of the most empowering things we can do is to stop, to learn about our stress responses. To, to learn about those generally, which you can do from books and things like that. But actually, if you're really interested in living into your full capacity, you're going to have to work on your stress response individually because it is tricky, tricky, tricky. And you know it as your personality. And so it takes someone else's eyes to be like, hmm, let's, let's dig right there into that word, into that behavior. And let's begin to identify how your survival self is showing up in that, right? And what, where, where's the lack of safety? And, and I think that too, like every time, and, and you and I are both warrior systems. And so we feel a lack of safety very differently than some other systems might, right? So, um, and I won't speak for you, but for myself, like I didn't actually feel fear. What, what I now know other people feel is like visceral fear in their body. I didn't feel that till I was 38, like I'd never had an emotional fear in my body and it wasn't until after an ayahuasca ceremony that my nervous system opened up enough to be like, oh, and I was like, oh, this is full body visceral fear. Cool. This is what everyone's been telling me about why they can't take an action because my system can override that. 
right? Because I'm, I'm of the warrior clan. And so we will just, we will go chasing the tigers so that other people don't have to, right? So, you know, we all experience it differently, but that's still a lack of my safety. Me running after the tiger yelling all of the time is still a lack of safety in my system because if there's a tiger in my room, I have, I have come from the perspective that I am not safe here in my body, yeah. right? So it's, it, it's important for us to have the space to be held in looking at what our, how our stress response has been shaped. Mm-hmm. A lot of our stress response is not shaped by ourselves. It's shaped from our family. It's shaped from other people. We, we co-opt other people's stress responses as well. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You're going to say something. No, no, that's, that's great. And I, I just want to come interject for a moment to pick, pick, pick this apart because I think the conversation about safety and survival is one that people still need a lot of permission to begin having, yeah. especially men. Cause you, you know, you were talking about different archetypal systems and one of the things in terms of social narratives that men have been led to believe is that we're all just these, if you're not a rock solid warrior without any emotions or feelings and no fear, then you're, you're, you have no value in our society. Go figure, go come back when you figured that out. And the motivation from stress responses, whoa, like that, that was, that's been such a huge, huge revelation for myself. And like you said about building up a personality and an identity around a stress response, I remember when you first revealed that to me and I was like, damn, you're right. Because <laughs> I, I and I knew that about myself. In fact, I prided myself on it. I've created social media content from that false personality because it's worked for me. Right. Yeah. And we do it. And, yeah. I, and I wonder how many other people are actually doing that out there. Yeah. And it's not coming from that root of, an, of a true and authentic purpose. So, again, without spiraling off too far, just this conversation about yeah. safety and survival and, and using that as a baseline yeah. reference whether you're a man, a woman, whether you're young or old, but as a baseline yeah. beginning point and then moving yeah. forward from there. How, how do you how does that actually look for somebody who's just beginning to take a look at this false personality? Mm. It's such an important question. So if we if we back it up and we say we are born with our gift and our shadow active. They're both innate. Right. Because the gift and the shadow are the two sides of the same coin. So I am born with like my curriculum and and that comes through the gift and the shadow and they're both there. And so when I'm young, I have probably pretty equal access to my gift and my shadow. Right. Because the, the shadow just being the unconscious part that hasn't come fully into integration. It's not as aware. It's not as refined. Right. It's also plugged in more to the collective of it the gift part maybe i don't know pass off we could do whatever but anyway it's more of the refined aspect right it's more of the place that's coming from a little bit higher consciousness or deeper consciousness and so for me um i have a gift of performing i was born a dancer and i've always wanted to be on stage I've, i i don't have a trouble talking on stage i'd rather do that than have to have like a small talk at a party like i'll go give a talk to three thousand people no problem having to have a conversation one-to-one at a party like that is really hard so the gift of my ability to be on stage also has a shadow that i can um pursue that in a way that's real and have pursued that in a way that's really detrimental to my well-being really detrimental to mental health and physical health and all of these things so if i am 
if I want to move out of the survival aspects, I have to heal where I'm following the shadow or resistant to the shadow so that I am more in the consciousness of the gift part, right? Which means if we say that we're going to live in the gift, what we're going to do is we're going to open up multiple choices. We're going to have more of that capacity we're talking about, more ability to see it from 360 degrees. Shadow keeps it narrow. Shadow keeps it small. So the sh- so part of the shadow of, a, of us could be like, this is what I have to do and this is how I have to do it. And that's what we see a lot in leaders. I'm following the gift part of this is what I'm here to do. But through the shadow path of I have to do it this way or everyone's expecting this from me or I don't get any space for myself or whatever it is. And that's where the survival part comes in. Right. And the survival is going to be finite energy. It's going to need, it's not going, it can't, it, it's going to hit a wall, right? Because we're only meant to survive until we're back to thriving, until we're back to safety. Would you call that burnout? Is that what people? That's what most of us are experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's how most of us are going to experience it. We're going to burn out. What's really burning out is that we're trying to live through survival energy. Why are we burning out so fast? We're trying to do our high level gifts through finite energy. It's like putting unclean oil in your car. Mm-hmm. It's like putting bad fuel in your car. It's not the car. It's not the car that's the problem, right? So we can't paint the car and be like, oh, let me just keep putting the bad oil in there and the bad fuel in there. And then it's going to run better because I just got a paint job, right? We have to clean out the gunk that's now built up from the improper oil and and fuel that we've been using, get new injectors and blah, 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 right? And then we have to start using clean energy, right? So this process of, of coming into safety is actually being able to take responsibility for cleaning out where we've been using the unclean energy. And not unclean because we're bad or any of those aspects but unclean just be simply that it was coming through survival, through scarcity, through the fear of not enough, through, through our fear of unworthiness, through seeking validation, right? That's the survival energies that most of us are operating in. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough likes. I don't have enough clients. I don't have enough, you know, it's, it's this, that, that place. And that is fueling. So I actually just wrote, I was just, I was like, it's not enough to have a good idea or offer. Um, It matters the energy with which we're carrying it. And so I think that part of this, this development of us, of, of, of of learning to lead our own life is recognize we have to carry our own gift, our own message, our own legacy with energy of love and support and belief and trust and curiosity and inspiration. Otherwise, we're trying to carry something precious, but, you know, in piles of shit. And for me, it just keeps coming back to this perception of urgency. And I think so many of us, I believe me, I know I'm, I'm still susceptible to this myself. And I'm, I'm really curious why that urgency has become such a factor in mm. living and leading in one's purpose. Uh, I know both of us have a, a, a reference point of just ancestral connections and 
acknowledging totally. the, the timeline of human history that we yeah. the part that we know is so little and it's it's so hard to imagine that this urgency that almost that feels actually manufactured to me yeah and inorganic yeah. um yeah where is that coming from and, and why do we continue to subscribe to it from your perspective Totally. And I, I, I do think we have to take an ancestral lens here. And I and so firstly, I want to say that I think that one of the most loving and beautiful things we can do is to evolve this piece um, in honor of our ancestors, because our ancestors were probably not the dreamers because <laughs> they all got eaten. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, they, they all starved. So our ancestors were the ones that were like, everything's a tiger and we're going to survive right so we come from survival right because there was times on this planet where like it wasn't as safe as it is right now right so we have so that is biologically wired into us right we're born ready for stress we are not born ready for gratitude right the prefrontal cortex doesn't come online until our mid-20s Right. The part of us that is this executive functioning brain, that's not born wired up. Our stress response is born wired. Right. Right. So in this evolution of humanity, we have come from this survival energy. So what we as modern day people have the opportunity to do is to begin to shift this evolutionary aspect. This is an evolutionary jump that we get to say yes to. Right. Because what is innate is stress. So we have parts of us like if you are in survival, it does not make sense to sit down and contemplate things. Right. You don't have time to contemplate. You don't have time to weigh your options. You just got to go. So the urgency we feel, I think, in that way is innate. The problem is a lot of us, most of us living in Western culture right now are not in survival. So one of the things I say to my students and, and my clients is I believe that it is of the highest disrespect for me, for those of us who are not living in true survival, to act as if we are, to move into this collective, to move in the world as though I were like, oh my gosh, the, that I didn't get enough likes or this, that, or the other happened to me. Like to act as if that's, to live like the Kardashian level survival over ridiculous things to me is so disrespectful to those people in this world who are still living in survival because there are people in this world who are still in survival so if i want to begin to change the tide i want my energy as i infiltrate through the collective as i am part of i can never get out of the collective that i am part of right and so my job is to be a different wave maker in this collective which means i get to counter urgency it will be easiest always to follow the current that's already there so it is a radical act it is a sacred rebellion to say i have the time and space to contemplate i have enough resourcing support to fall over right here while i try something new it's a sign that i'm sending out a new biological impulse of safety to slow down. So would you say that a lot of what people are experiencing as survival 
is a perception of survival or, or perhaps a new level of it. Cause I mean, I think I just saw the other day that 65% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and some percentage of them wouldn't be able to, uh, wouldn't be able to handle a, a health emergency because they don't have the resources for it. I think systemically we, as, as a system of people, have made survival normal. Mm. Right. If we actually took stock of our resources, if we actually came into balance, are we really in survival? And when we're, when we're defining survival, we've all... we're talking about basic survival, right? Like the. Yeah. I, I, for me, yes. Yes. Yeah. For me, yes. Right. But it's like, if we didn't have, if we hadn't bought into the financial system that we've bought into, in, in this country, at least, I don't know about other systems. I assume most Western cultures set up the same, right? But if, if we hadn't bought into this, like, is there enough resources for us to be living? And the answer is yes. But we have um, uh, we have distribution of, of wealth that's ridiculous, right? We have systems of, of, of scarcity and oppression that are so normalized, it doesn't dawn on us to challenge them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. We, we have given our power away to government systems that do not serve our well-being. They serve to keep us in survival. Right. We are weak. We are weak as people because of these this the systematic survival energy that we treat as life. But it's not true in that sense of like what true reality is. Right. It's real in the sense that we're experiencing it. Right, and I think that's the, the, the distinction that's really important to make is the perception of what survival really is. And because um, yeah. I've had many moments where I've had to be really frank and honest with myself and say, man, like my, my life is really, really good. And the 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 lifestyle that I'm able to provide for myself and for my family. When I look at the complaints, like the complaint department, you know, Carrie and I take inventory of this a lot. And we look at the the things that we're dissatisfied with in our lives. And we're like, this isn't survival. This is, this is far from basic survival. This is trying to create a certain quality of living that we want to achieve for ourselves. But when we break it down, yeah. basic survival, that's never not been met for me. And there's a lot of people who are yeah. fortunate enough to have that experience and also many more who yeah. are not. And I think that's, yeah. it's an important reference to make. And then I think it's, it's also good to yes, acknowledge that. And then also look at, well, yeah, there is this normalization of systemically of what survival is supposed to look like. And yeah. instead of feeling like we're under the weight of that hierarchical fist, that's just pushing us down. What can right. I do to make myself feel more safe in my own world and then create yeah. from there? Absolutely. And if, if we just kind of take a different lens on it than the finances, if we look at survival, um, you know, again, basics like keeping our body alive and the way we hold this in Western culture. So when I get a fever, as a Western person, I'm told to take a medicine right, to mitigate that fever. But what the fever is actually doing is it's my body surviving. 
Now I have to monitor that because there's going to be a tipping point where that moves from my body being able to manage that and burn off whatever it's working through to there being a greater load than what my body can handle. And that is where I would need support, whether that's acute medicine or, or however that might be met, right? But we as Western people haven't built a capacity to be with the discomfort of our body trying to keep itself alive. We want to mitigate everything that we call discomfort. So we actually don't allow the healing response, which is where survival comes in. Because we don't want to feel the discomfort of the healing response. Right? So if we go back then to applying that to the systemic aspects of survival, why can't we get this human family thing working? Right? We're afraid of the effects of the healing response. And I think that that's kind of start, stop, and that like, oh, oh my God, what's going to happen here? We've seen over the past few years coming through the pandemic where different opportunities for the healing response to come out. And we all go, no, 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 too messy, too many voices, too chaotic. And we squelch it back down. Right? Why have police killings risen since George Floyd rather than decreased? Right? Because there's this this way that we're not willing to go through the healing response, so we're putting the kibosh on it, which is escalating the resonance toward the violence. Yeah, I, I really like that perspective. And you know, when I when I think about that and how I'm how I'm observing what's what's happening in the world and what's happening for people, it's we haven't we, there's i think there's been too many sequences of generations where this this wisdom of survival i love what you said about the ancestors by the way because that that's something i always bring in is we're only here having this conversation because our ancestors figured out something that somebody else's ancestors didn't not even somebody else's <laughs> like <laughs> another <laughs> legacy of people that died off because they didn't figure right. it out so we're here because yeah. of a legacy of survival we're survivors yeah. by yeah. dna we and are. birthright and right. The fact that we don't give ourselves enough opportunities to endure challenging times. And, and mm. also, I think sometimes not giving enough credit to the challenges that we have endured and, and, and sourcing yeah. strength from, from those yeah. experiences. Because, I mean, a yeah. lot of the guys that I speak to in our community, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years old, and I say, listen, if you've made it this far, there's no way that you've made it without going through some hard shit. I don't care if you came for money or you right. didn't. I don't care if you had your dad around yeah. or you didn't. Every single one of yeah. us, we have so many of these, these experiences we can draw strength from. Instead, yeah. the the narrative that we share is that we are we are weak people that are dependent on right. so many other things, like you just outlined, in order to survive. Yeah. There's something really beautiful when we even just start to turn the tide on how we look at our own survival, right? Like, yeah. rather than being like, oh my God, I got to survive. Be like, oh my goodness, look at what, like, I did survive. You know, like thanking our coping mechanisms, right? It's like, that maybe wasn't how I wanted to go through that, but like, I'm so glad you made it. I'm so glad you've, you've done this. I think that, you know, just going back to something that you said before around it, it's, you know, this urgency piece, if we look at it from like a different perspective, is really a buy into a into a, a separation, into duality. 
right? And so in the healing of our own separation, which I think is essential, and for me, really, where embodiment work comes in, it's like, what am I doing when I'm learning to inhabit myself and, and be with all of my parts? I'm healing separation through my own body, through my own system. And if I want to see that reflected in the world, I have to be able to, like, how can I say, let's not have war with each other when I still live in war with myself, right? So I think that there's this 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 way that healing separation starts with ourself. But I also think that the the healing of separation also has to do with time. And so um, I am of the bent that time is a consciousness that's way wiser than me. And it's not something I'm ever going to figure out. It's not something that I ever really need to understand. But so time doesn't need me to manage it. Time doesn't need me to control it. And I definitely don't want to be in a relationship of scarcity with time because that's going to fuel the urgency. Right. And so just like you were talking about those babies who have all the time in the world, I have all the time in the world. Because the truth is, I'm not getting out of here alive. Like that, that sense of urgency, right? It's like that can drive me towards my death or a sense of openness and spaciousness can arrive me towards my end. Uh, the, the outcome is pretty well known. How I walk that is what matters. And so if I continue to follow, let my body follow the urgency, follow the stress response, follow the conditioned self, I'm missing my own life because I'm not living in the fullest capacity of choice. Presence in this body, in this moment is all there is. Everything is now. If it's all now, where do I think I'm going? Right? There is no such thing as urgency. It's simply a perception that has driven evolution. What if, what if we choose a new perception to drive evolution? For me, my urgency led to self-violence, which for me was self-talk. I was, I, you know, was a ballerina. I learned very early on that if I wanted to be the best, that I had to be mean to myself and inflict extreme pressure. Because otherwise, why would I torture myself? <laughs> right? Like, why would I do that to my body? Um, but that was my addiction. And so that level of violence, creating the urgency to do it again, do it more, do it more. It's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. So my antidote to that is now I am in the experiment of how do I motivate myself with softness? I love my warrior nature. I love my fierceness, but how do I allow my fierceness to be held with soft grace? Right. So I feel like healing separation actually gets us into a new dance with polarity. Which I think that's, that's ultimately the, if there's like a simple piece in all of this to, to acknowledge what has helped me to make it this far. I really like that you said that not dismissing all of these coping mechanisms, but shifting into gratitude, even yeah. even things like, um, like addictions and things that have yeah. like helped us to get to here. 
you made it yeah. to here and you're still alive, yeah. which means you got a pulse, you're upright, you're still in the game. Yeah. And from this moment of awareness and presence, if we can pull ourselves out of the future thinking and get to here, yeah. there's choice. There's choice that I can make about how I want to continue to create a sense of safety and survival for myself that looks different yeah. than what it has before. Because if there's anything that I've learned from like the, the ancestral perspective, the survival game is going to continue. That's, it's what it, that's what it's always been. That's what it's yeah. always been. It's not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wake up and try to survive every day. Right. And that's, and, and for me, that's what, the, what it is. It's like, and especially if I look at just the aspect of like humanity, mm-hmm. right? Like survival is imminent. Like we, that the, the humans will survive somehow, right? Like that will, and, until something else happens to, t- to possibly take us out, we are that adaptable. Right. Right. The question though of my own personal evolution, right? Is survival enough? Mm. That's the one right there. (laughs) Right? So if I can, like, so for me, it's like I came to the point that like surviving my life was like, I'm not interested actually in that. I'm I'm actually not interested. So if that's what I'm going to do here, you know what? I'm out. And, and for me, that was really the conversation. Not that I ever became suicidal, but it's like, eh, if, if this is what it is, I don't really want to participate. Survival for me is not enough. So how do I not stay in the scarcity of that? How do I actually change the whole interface? So here's the thing. My nervous system is always detecting threat. It was designed to do that. I do not have to worry as much about my survival. In fact, I will actually survive better if I stop interfering. Because genius has designed it so that I am always detecting threat inside of myself, biologically, physiologically, around me and my environment, and in relation to other people. But detection is not the same as perception. And there is a two-way highway here. It's not just one way. So my detection is not just feeding my perception. My perception also feeds my detection. So there's a relationship here where I, in the conscious self of Elisha, can operate is I can influence my perceptions. I, I have that sovereign power. I have that conscious ability. So when I'm willing to take the full self-responsibility for what am I perceiving in the world? How am I perceiving myself? How am I perceiving life? Right? What we could call mindset, belief work, whatever we want to make it, story. When I take responsibility for my perception, I also am feeding new information into my detection. Well, what do all the manifestation teachers tell us? Where you focus, that's where you go, right? Energy goes where your focus flows. So my detection is part of that focus field, paying attention. If I'm feeding back into it, like, hey, you're doing all right. This is going pretty well. You get to slow down. And I stop detecting for the same threats. If I stop detecting for false tigers, I'm going to actually notice the real tigers a lot better. 
right? So we, so while, while neuroception is always working and I, it's happening at the pre-conscious level, I also can influence it by what I'm willing to perceive. And if I'm willing to notice what I'm perceiving from comparisonitis, from jealousy, from not enough, from whatever it might be, from the habit that I gained from my parents, and I get to go, hmm, is that really what I want to be perceiving? Is that true? Is that the quality? Is this what I want? Is this enough for me? And I, I really love this, this piece. I think this is where a good place for us to put a bookmark in it for next time is awesome. I think the, I think the ultimate work in, in being able to interpret what my nervous system is telling me and being able to influence it with my perception and all these other components that we talked about that fuel a human being to be able to mm. survive and go beyond survival to live into purpose yeah. and then to generate legacy is to be the um to be, the word that comes to mind and I'll just use it instead of looking for another one is is to be the master uh, of these voices yes and yeah. to be able to direct them and that's such a challenging thing to do i talked to so many men and, and i know cuz i experienced mm. it myself the difficulty yeah. to be to be the chief the voice that mm. hears and takes in information from all of the other voices and then decide and then take mm. action from there and to accept whatever the consequences of that are. That's the yeah. essential journey of what I think of as adulthood. And, and in our case, yeah. we focus on manhood and it's so hard to trust that and to, and mm. to accept the responsibility of, yeah. of taking in all that information, processing it, and then moving forward. I think that's where I see so many people getting hung up. And yeah, what you shared so much here today is just, I just hear permission and everything that you're saying, I just hear, permission totally. to be to, yeah. to take charge of these different yeah. parts of yourself i also think it's more fun i think once we can get over ourselves a little bit it is a much more fun way to live sure and i think that we have to pay the cost for life one way or the other mm -hmm. and when we don't want to become that into that level of mastery we want to pay the cost later this, this level of mastery, this level of awakeness, right? What we're saying is like, it's really hard to be awake. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> it is It's really hard to be awake because we don't get to get out of the current moment of loss, the current moment of pain, the current moment of confusion. We're getting the whole pie right now, rather than being like, here's a tiny little sliver. Here's a tiny little sliver, right? And like, we're trying to eat the pie slowly over time. When you live in that center of that mastery, you're like, I whole pie right now all mine it's all mine but i think it's more fun i really I, do i love it i agree i agree with you too um it's it's certainly worth it it's certainly worth sticking it yeah. out and being in it yeah um all right i want to make sure i get you out of here close to the time okay. i said i would so let me i, I can't have believe a few lightning I, that questions. went so fast it goes by so fast every time it goes by so fast um i'm gonna hit you with a few lightning questions and then i'd love for you to just tell everybody where they can go to follow you and hear more of the okay. amazing wisdom you've got. Um, right. So really quick, what is one thing you've learned that you wish you knew when you were 18? That it's, it's okay to skin your knees. It's okay to choose again. It's okay to not know what you're doing. Love that one. What do you think is the most important value to have as a human? Acceptance. And what do you think the world needs most from men right now, men specifically? 
Ooh, I'm just, so what I'm seeing is this image of this like man on their feet, hands up with this roaring yet to like eating life, just eating it up. Just yes to life. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that image. Um, so last but not least, please tell everybody where they can go to find you, follow you, learn more about you and everything that you're doing. Totally. I love to play on Instagram. Um, it's Alicia underscore helping. And website in progress, always. Um, but alishatichelle.com or alishahalpin.com. Beautiful. We'll make sure we put all of that in the show notes for everybody too. Alicia, yeah. I mean, I know I could talk to you forever and have <laughs> so many more insights, but thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom and everything that you got. I look forward uh, to doing it again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you so much for your work in the world. All right, y'all, I hope you enjoyed that. Make sure you swing over to risingman.org slash dojo and get yourself registered for dojo coming up in May, May 4th through the 7th here in Austin, Texas. Trust me, you are not gonna wanna miss this opportunity. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to us as well as the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Big ups to everybody out there repping Rising Man. Remember to keep those birds up. And until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.